0: Thank you for coming. Thank you for sticking around. Uh, So remember, I have an eighth point from what was supposed to have been done in the first hour. Uh, Poor planning. Uh, I'm even going to hold off on that because I think it's the most important thing that I have to say. And I'm going to go into the next talk. And this is entitled, How Not to Parent Your Children. How Not to Parent Your Children. Let me pray, please. Father in heaven, um, Lord, you know my heart and you know that I do not want to deliver this message, uh, Lord, for it brings painful memories to me. But Lord, if there are things which I have learned which will be of help to people so that they would not commit the same sins that I did, then Lord, please allow me to communicate this with grace in a way that is uh, helpful and that these children perhaps would be the ones that would benefit from this the most. And so I commit this into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wish I owned a functional time machine. Um, I think that if I did, I would go back and redo my parenting. Um, but I don't know if I would. Uh, Maybe that's a really arrogant thought. I think I would, but maybe if I went back, I would be worse if I had to do it over. Uh, But now I have completed my race as a dad, and I have regrets, and I want to share my regrets with you, Uh, not as therapy for myself. This is not therapeutic, but I'm doing it so as to help you not make the same mistakes or commit the same sins that I did. Um, now, although I have regrets, I don't despair, and the reason that I don't despair is because of the sovereignty of God and because of the gospel, and the gospel is of first importance. Life is filled with moments, even years, where we wish that we had a do-over. We wish we had a time machine. Uh, the gospel does not offer a do-over. The gospel does not offer a mulligan. It offers something better it offers forgiveness, and it offers restoration. And there are still consequences for our sins, but there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So uh, if I live with the realization that I did many things wrong, and I did, but instead of that, I want to live with the greater reality, and that is that even though in my parenting I have many regrets, I am forgiven by God because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so this section um, is autobiographical, but as I said, it is not therapeutic. It is autobiographical, and um, it is just for your benefit. In fact, uh, this is one of these sessions that, like, I wish that it wasn't being recorded. Uh, I wish that it could just sort of be written and written anonymously, that I wasn't actually a real person that was delivering this information. Um, because just to be very honest, what I'm about to tell you is going to cast me in a bad light, and deservedly so. But I'm not casting myself in a bad light so that uh, you will feel better about yourself um, and I'm not doing it just to uh, accentuate how bad I was, uh, I'm going to give you this, and if you can think of it in this terms, I am a man who has walked down several alleys, and I've gotten to the end, and I have seen that they are a dead end. Now what I am doing as an old man is I am walking back in the direction of the main street, and I'm waving my arms, and I'm saying to you, I have been down there, and I can tell you with personal experience, it is a dead end. Do not go down there. There is nothing for you. So, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the church, for the sake of your children, in the following eight ways, do not follow my example. Number one, first and foremost, anger. Anger. I've quoted this verse I know twice already, and I might quote it a few more times before we go, and that is James 1.20, and that is that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You know, when you have an angry parent, there are a lot of excuses that can be made for why the parent is angry with their kids. Uh, they don't listen because they don't listen when I am calm, therefore I have to raise my voice in order to get their attention. Or, I want to communicate to them the seriousness of obedience and the only way that I can do that is to express volume and anger. Or, we want to punctuate the need for respect and unless there is some sort of anger or displeasure they're not going to see this or I work hard and my nerves are worn out and they should know that my nerves are worn out they shouldn't press me it's not my fault it's their fault or the kid doesn't know when to let up he just presses and presses and he drives me to the boiling point or I was raised in a house where that's what parents did. The only example that I had is that the dad would yell and throw things and blow up violently, hit me. And so, do you expect me to be any different than the model that I had in front of me? And for the sake of argument, I was not one to throw things or to be violent. But I was one that was angry. Another one is this. I'm the king of the castle. I'm the boss. And I will run my house as I please. And if I want to blow up, well, that's perfectly fine because I am the Lord of this house. You see, deep down, I love my children. But an occasional eruption, well, that's to be expected because I'm only human. And my kids know that I love them. And after all, here's the worst excuse. Jesus got angry in the temple. Well, I'm just being emotional like Jesus. And there are other excuses that we use to justify our anger. The fact is, it is ungodly, and it is not how our Heavenly Father deals with us. Turn, please, to Psalm 103, favorite of all my psalms, of all the psalms, Psalm 103, Listen as I read verses 8 through 14. This is how God deals with us. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, slow to anger, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor pay us according to our iniquities, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. How different that is than the way that I often dealt with my children. Now, I am not saying, and I think you know this from the previous talk, I am not saying that we should not discipline our children. We must. But when it is done in violence or anger, and I never did violence, thankfully, but I did it in anger, and when there is volume and when it is out of control, it is, quite frankly, sin. It's ungodly, and it does not produce righteousness. But here's what it does produce. It produces a a horrible example which is going to be repeated in the next generation. It produces bitterness. It produces resentment. And it is ungodly. So, I've spoken to you about spanking. Uh, Let me tell you what I myself had to do as recently as three years ago. I've been in the ministry since 1984, and so I'm not proud to say this, but three years ago in 2019, I had to go and see a biblical counselor uh, who would help me with my anger problem. And when you say anger problem, it makes it sound so innocuous it, 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 at its very heart, it is pride. At its very heart, it is sin. It is putrefying to God. I, I hope I'm not using euphemistic words to make it sound like well, it was just sort of a, a genetic trait or something like that. No, it was it was sin. But I want to tell you that Pastor Mike Moultrie really helped me when he counseled me and helped me through some of my some of my issues. And another thing that was so helpful to me in this, as I said earlier, was understanding the um, gospel of Jesus Christ and understanding God's mercy to me. The gospel is of first importance. James 2.13, judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. And so I just want to say that in my times that I spent with my children, and we're going back 31 years now, I have a grand total of zero times that I lost my temper with my kids that I can look back and feel good about it today. And so I would say to you, speak to your spouse, talk to your children, uh, learn from them and ask them if they perceive you to be an angry person. Learn from them, evaluate, be accountable. And I would say, if you have a problem, you do need to go get counseling. You do need to get help. If it's you, seek forgiveness without excuses and repent. And so here I am, I'm walking down this alleyway. I am an angry man. I am bossing my kids around, and now my race is run. My kids are raised, and I'm walking back in the opposite direction saying, brothers and sisters, there is nothing down there but sadness and sorrow, and it does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Number two, and closely related, I deeply, deeply regret my sin of competitiveness. Uh, that is a euphemism for sinful pride. And that is, I always felt and I always modeled in front of my children that you have to win. Stories told of Ty Cobb, uh, a baseball player with the highest lifetime batting average. Stories told of him one time in back in the day, um, when ball players would go on the road, they would room together. They would be in the same room. So you'd have a roommate. And, um, he played for the Detroit Tigers back like, in, like 1910 to 1920 or right in there. And, and they went into a hotel and his roommate, uh, ran the bath and got into the tub. And Ty Cobb went over and grabbed his naked roommate and pulled him out of the tub and threw him on the floor and said to him, don't you understand? I have to be first. I have to be first. Competitiveness. And it doesn't matter whether it is sports or it is board games or it is one upmanship with jokes or whatever. I was intensely competitive. As a Little League coach, in the year 2000, I coached two teams. My teams lost one game. In the year 2001, we lost one game. In the year 2002, we lost one game. Do you know that to this day, I can replay those three losses in three years in my mind? That's how competitive I was. The commissioner of the league would stand up and say, now, coaches, listen, We're just out here to have fun, so just make sure your kids are having fun. And I would sit there, and I would nod my head, and then I would pull my kids aside, and I would say, our goal is to have fun, and let me tell you something. We are not going to have any fun unless we win. And that is how it works. I used to have a little kid on my team named Patrick O'Donohue. He was a short Irish, imagine that kid. Short to begin with, and in the late innings, if we were losing... I would say, squat, Patrick, squat. And he was about this tall. And so what I would get him to do is to squat down as low to the ground as he possibly could so that he literally had no strike zone whatsoever so that at age eight, he could work out a walk and we could get a run if we needed it. I would do anything I could to win. Finally, it all hit a horrible boiling point three years ago at youth camp when there was a game being played and the gentleman officiating the game. um, I mean, it's another sermon for another day, but quite frankly, he was incompetent he was wrong. But that's not, I'm not here to, to get worked up about that. But the fact that I expressed that discontent, that's what finally led me to go to a biblical counselor and say, I need help, I need help. You see, winning is not bad, but being obsessed with winning in a prideful way is both contagious and consuming. I'm not a psychologist, uh, but I know that competitiveness really at the end of the day is nothing more than pride. And again, it doesn't have to be sports. It can be board games. It can be anything. My son Parker's two oldest children, Scarlett and Haddon, uh, Haddon came to me. Uh, at age six, and said I lost a tooth, and Scarlet, age five, jumped right in and said, "And I've lost two teeth." Uh, it's. It, I think by nature we are wanting to one up people, and if I had to do over again, I would say we wouldn't have to win all the time. I would be much more content to actually have fun and take a loss. So here I am, this old man who's walked down this alley, always trying to win, always trying to be first at everything, and I'm coming back toward you, and I'm saying, it is a dead-end street. You will have regrets if competitiveness is a part of your makeup. Number three, and closely related, and this is the thing for which I am most ashamed, and that is, if I had it to do over again, I would not stress Physical fitness, uh, weight loss, uh, getting in shape, uh, being athletic, um, just being as fit as you possibly could be. Uh, I'll give you an explanation. This is not an excuse, but I'll give you an explanation for what drove me. Uh, From the time that I was in the fifth grade until the twelfth grade, I was a wrestler. And as a wrestler, we would have to cut weight. Now, if if you've never wrestled, you've never cut weight, it's, it's a very grueling process. And so you would have to do things like sleep in a rubber suit, or you would sit in class with a milk carton, and you would spit into the milk carton to lose weight, or you would stand in the shower uh, when it was hot and just jump up and down so as to sweat and lose weight. You, it, was, it was a very unhealthy way to live. But in order to make weight... Uh, this is the way I lived from the time that I was in the fifth grade to the 12th grade. You were always doing that as a, as a, a foolish father. Uh, I tried to in many ways run my home as though everyone were a wrestler. Uh, in many years I've cried many bitter tears for the demands that I placed on my children, making them run laps around the block. Uh, I'm extremely ashamed of myself. Um, and I just want to say that if I could do it again, uh, I would want our kids to eat healthy, I would want them to exercise, but the demands that I made upon them, uh, it makes me very sad today. And so I'd give the world and everything in it if I could turn back the clock 20 years and I can have a balanced, healthy approach to exercise and diet, and I would not put the undue pressure on my children uh, to cut weight like a wrestler, um, and this is, I believe, where I need the grace of Jesus Christ the most. I'm very hesitant to share this with you. Not really happy about the fact that this is being recorded. I'm not proud of this, but I I, I sure would want to spare any parent in this room uh, from going through the hell and the horror uh, that I put my kids through in putting undue pressure on them in this way. Number four. If I had life to do over again, I would have traveled less without my family. Maybe I would have traveled less, period. But I'm not just talking about overnight trips, um, like going to Jamaica or going different places and preaching, but I'm also talking about local outings, like going to a Mets game by myself, or going to movies by myself, or even going and hanging out with my friends. My wife's parents live in Georgia and, uh, my wife is an only child. And I am so glad that my children got to spend time with their grandparents, but you know, they would spend a couple of weeks there every summer. If I had it to do over again, I would either go with them or I would send them for less time. Um, and And I alluded to this in my talk earlier. I really wish uh, that I had taken more time with my children growing up. I really wish that I had 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 spent more time in the house and less time out and about doing things. Um, I treasure every memory and every moment that I have with my children. I cannot say the same. About these other things that I did, things that I did by myself, or things that I did when I was away from them, I know that there are times when I would have to work and I would have to go places but 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 time away from the family was never time well spent, and so thankfully, there were times and places when I could take my children along with me, and that was that was wonderful. But, as I quoted earlier from psalm ninety twelve teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Uh, I look back maybe at time spent away from my kids as wasted time. Let me go back to my father for just a moment. Um, so, in the nineteen fifties and this is before I was born, my parents started having children in nineteen forty six my brother was born in 1953. I have another sister who was born in 1950. My parents did not have very much money, and so what my father would do is he would travel different places to, to get a job. Um, there was one period in my dad's life where the family was living in western Pennsylvania. This is before I was born. And he was working in Huntington, Long Island in a radio station. And a guy said to him one day, he said, Moore, you're amazing you have this family back in pennsylvania and yet you spend all your time here and you only go home like once a month for a few days how do you do it it's it's i i mean you're 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 amazing and my dad said doesn't bother me a bit doesn't bother me a bit i'm fine and then one day out of nowhere inexplicably god hit my dad with this miserable feeling that he was away from his family. And that day he quit his job and came back and he said, I will never again work in another town where my children are not. I have to be with them. And, uh, as long as I can remember, I'm born in 61, uh, my dad was always with us. Uh, I regret, I regret time spent away from my children. Um, and there'd be times when I would be out doing things and, and it would hit me as well, whether it was local or traveling. And I'd say to myself, I would just look around and I would say, what am I doing here with these strangers when I have a wife and kids at home? And so let me just say this. I'm an old man. I have run my race. I've been a man who has traveled I have been a man who has gone out and done things and and I've gotten to the end of that alley and now I am walking back and I'm waving my arms and I'm saying, moms and dads, don't go down there. There is nothing there. It is a dead end street. Spend as much time with your children as you possibly can. Number five, as I look back, I'm grieved with my outward displays of idolatry, especially as it relates to sports. Uh, the reason I'm grieved primarily is because God is better and, and a hot pursuit of him brings happiness and he is worthy and he deserves our heart affection. But I'm also living in regret right now because idolatry is both Uh, contagious and it is disappointing. Um, My kids have the same wicked heart that I have. And I wish that I could go back and I wish that I could treat sports in a different way. Um, I don't want them to be bent on the idolatry of sports. And, and if a child sees their father or their mother, so addicted to sports, they will think then that it is acceptable. And the older I get, you know, I I am now disgusted with sports fanaticism. I don't have any problem watching a game. I think it's okay. But when I see total religious devotion to a sports team, I see how hollow it is. I see how empty it leaves you. And I see that it doesn't satisfy. Uh, I'm a Georgia Bulldog fan. 41 stinking years. We waited 41 years for our team to, won, to win. This year they won on a Monday night. They beat Alabama. On Tuesday, I was very happy. On Wednesday, I looked on my phone to see who the returning starters were for the next year. In other words, once you have won, do you know what you have? Nothing, it delivers nothing. And you don't win that often, but even when you do win, it delivers nothing. It never fulfills, but Christ, Christ fulfills. And so right now, at age 61, You know what I really enjoy, you know, like really what what like gets me excited? Church, Jesus, Bible, Christians, evangelism, the things of God. It's so much more satisfying than anything in sports. Um, You know, my kids grew up with a dad who made New York Mets baseball and University of Georgia football a priority, They grew up watching sinful idolatry, which was not just a waste of time, but it was a sin against the God who died for me. And it was foolish. And so I bought shallow pleasures and pursued shallow pleasures at the expense of the worship of the true and living God. Jeremiah puts it this way. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewn or cut out cisterns or wells for themselves, broken wells or cisterns that cannot hold water. So try to observe the bondage and the slavery of those who who idolize sports or anything else and see how empty it is and observe, and be repulsed, and look in the mirror, and repent. My idolatry for sports is a regret that I carry to this day. So you're looking at a guy who's an old man who's walked down this alley, and I have spent a lot of money, and a lot of time, and a lot of sports, and a lot of energy, and emotion on these sports teams, and now I'm looking back, my kids are raised, and I'm saying, Parents, especially dads, especially dads, it is a dead-end street. Even if you get what you want, I'm telling you there is nothing down there. There is nothing down there. That is a regret that I have. Number six, I regret using my children as models or examples of what a Christian home would look like. Let me say that again. I regret... Trying to use my children as models or examples of what a Christian home would look like, um, and I'm not talking about sermon illustrations now. Uh, I think it, uh, Harry and Joey. I think it is a good thing to use your children in sermon. Uh, use your children for sermon illustrations. It will be the funniest thing that you will say, and it will be the most memorable thing that you can say. So feel free to use your kids by name bed wedding and everything in, in illustrations. No, just kidding about that. But you can use your kids in illustrations, but using your family as a model to make yourself appear godly or to make yourself appear. though so you have a good ministry. I wish that I had not done that being too hard on my children so that my children would make me look like a good parent. I remember when Ted Tripp came to our house. He was doing a parenting seminar. For us, and he came to our house and he was sitting at our table. And as he is sitting at our table, I'm sure there were nights when Parker was actually worse, but I can't remember a night. And so here's Parker, four years old, and he is behaving like an absolute hellion in front of Ted Tripp. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm really going to give it to him. Why? Because he's making me look bad. And I think that that is a horrible attitude. Now, it's true that if a man cannot rule his own household, he cannot be an elder. So kids do need to be orderly, but I took it too far. And I think the worst part of it is that it wasn't how hard I was on them, but it was the motive behind the strictness. In other words, here's where the selfishness came in. I think it's okay to be hard on kids and to expect a lot from them. However... When you're doing it so that your kid will make you look good, that's where it is bad. Don't make me look bad. And so I would do horrible things, like I would look at other parents in the church who didn't spank their kids. And so what I would do is I would make sure that I would discipline my kids over the top so that so that, I never harmed them, I never injured them, but I would do it so that other parents would see what it looks like to punish their children or to discipline their children. I would spank them or ground them or take away privileges so that I could send a message, and the message was this, Ed Moore is in control, and he knows how to raise good kids. And so my motive was, was, uh, was how I was perceived as a parent rather than the good of the children, And I would make excuses and say, well, this is for the good of the kids. And discipline is for the good of the kids, but I would take it too far because I wanted to use the kids as models. You see, when you discipline your children, it must be for the good of the child in mind. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10, we had earthly fathers and they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God the Father, disciplines us for our good, G-O-O-D, good, that we may share in his holiness. Oftentimes my discipline was so that I would look good, and I really regret that. So our children are not tools to make us look competent. And it's not just respect with respect to discipline, but it can be with grades as well. Grades were never really a big deal in our house but there are some families where the kids really have to get good grades. And if they don't get A's, they are considered a failure and you can say that you're doing it so that your children will get into a good school and they will get a good job or that their mind will be developed. But I think at the very heart of it, It is also, something behind that is, when your children get good grades, it makes you look good, and therefore you press them beyond maybe what they are able, or you press them with the wrong motive. Such selfish motives are not pleasing to God, and so I urge you, never employ your kids as models of your parenting skills. So here I am, this old man, I've walked down this alley, I've been really hard on my kids, wanted them to look good so that I would look good, and now I'm walking back and seeing you young people walk down, and I'm saying, don't go down there, it's a dead-end street. Treat your kids good for their good and not for your own. Number seven, if I had it to do over again, I would have been more active in protecting my children from sexual sin, especially from pornography. And I would do it better than I did it. I should have talked to them about sex at a much earlier age than I did. I gauged their sexuality based upon my own story. You see, if I wanted to look at naked women, when I developed an interest in that, I would walk down to Matthew's bookstore and I would run over to the magazine stand real quick and I would pull something down and I would look at it until the clerk behind the counter would scream at me and say, Eddie Moore, get out of here. And that was pretty much, not that that was in any way innocent. It it was, it was horrible, but, but, but a tiny glimpse of, of of someone that didn't have their clothes on is the only thing that I could ever catch. Now, I don't have to tell you what they have access to now. Well, I, in my mind, was living as though the sexuality of my children was not developing, at the, that it was developing at the same rate that mine was. See, a kid that's born in 1961 is going to have been exposed to far less than a kid who's born in the year... 1993 or 1991 or 1997 or the year 2000. And your children have been born after that. And what they are being exposed to, if you can believe it or not, is even worse and more prolific than what you had. And so you need to be more proactive in protecting your children against this thing, which can hurt them so badly, can hurt them so badly. I was naive and in many ways, by the time I was able to address it, it was too late. Um, and so I would just say this, I would just say this, uh, if you're thinking that it might be time to start addressing it with your kids, you're probably too late already. Because I want to tell you that, and pornography is just not for boys, it destroys the brain, it re- destroys relationship, it fries the soul, and 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 more than that, it is stopping your children from having the joy of the Lord and from feeling the smile of his presence. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that the number one sin that I as a pastor am dealing with now with young people in my life, in my church, is that of pornography. So I would say it this way, and again, you get tired of me saying it, but here I am. I'm an old man. I've run my race. And I've been very lax and just sort of naive walking down the street, not really paying attention to it. And I get to the end of the alley and I see how putrefying and how ugly it is and how destructive it is. And I'm coming back toward you and I'm saying, please, for the good of your children, please, for the advancement of the gospel, please, for their joy, be maniacally proactive in protecting them from the horrors of sexual sin. And number eight, I deeply regret not being more holy myself. This is the thing that I think saddens me the most. Too much compromise, too much media, Too loose a tongue. Not enough intentional accountability. Too many movies which were blatantly sinful. Too much exposure to worldliness. Too much exposure to things which were ungodly. You know, we're talking about this football thing. Two weeks ago, I went to the Georgia-Tennessee football game. It is not a joyful experience for a Christian. Uh, not because of the idolatry. But it is not a joyful ex- experience for a Christian simply because of the way that the females dress when they go to the games. It wars on your Soul. And when I think of all the football games that I took my kids to, and all of the places that I took them to, concerts and things like that, it it just makes me really sad now that I was so loose when it came to worldliness. Because sin makes you sad, and sin makes you stupid. See, I was raised as a legalist. When I say a legalist, I was raised in a fundamentalist home where we were not allowed to go to movies. Um, we were not allowed to go to dances. And, and what I did is as the pendulum was over here, I let it swing all the way in the opposite direction. And there was such liberty in our home. And in an overreaction against legalism, I believe I exposed my kids to way too much worldliness. And I regret it today. I wish that I had loved Jesus Christ more. I wish that I had been more holy. I wish that I had been more godly. The common objection is, well, you don't want your kids to be sheltered. It's like, when did shelter start to be such a dirty word? I mean, it's raining, and you're walking down the street, and you pull out an umbrella. Oh, put that down. You want to be so sheltered. No, every night when I go to sleep, there's 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 a roof over my head. So when it rains or it snows, I, I I don't get wet or I don't freeze. You know what that is? It's shelter. Shelter is not a bad thing. Jesus is our shelter in the time of storm. And exposure to sin is inevitable. But take it from a man who has regrets. If I had it to do over again, I would be much less worldly and much more godly and i would employ much more shelter the fruit of the spirit is joy and there is no joy in sin 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 joy is found in the presence of god psalm 16:11 So we were consistent with our family Bible reading. But I think in many ways, the good that I did through spending time in the Word was annulled or neutralized by the contradictory message of too much worldliness, being too loose, and I regret it today. So, if I had it to do over again, I regret my anger and my temper. I regret my competitiveness. I regret my emphasis on physical fitness. I regret having traveled so much and being away from my kids. I regret my sports idolatry. I regret using my kids to make myself look good. I regret not guarding them more from sexual, in sexual purity. I regret being too worldly. And you want to know the sad part? Those are some of my sins. I could list many more. My kids could list dozens more. And sadly, in my arrogance today, I'm not going to list any more. And even the eight that I told you about, I was actually much worse than I described it. God knows the truth. There's not one sin or shortcoming that he doesn't know altogether. And I've confessed these sins to him, and, and I have tried over the years to confess these sins to my children. God knows that I've failed, and he knows how you have failed. And my goal in this talk was to encourage you to avoid these things that I Foolishly engaged in. But maybe you already know some of these paths, and maybe if it was your turn to speak, you could get up and talk, and you could say, you know, he's right. These paths are leading me to sadness. Or or maybe this talk has greatly discouraged you because you've been reminded of how you have messed up. And maybe, like me, But in different ways, you say, I wish I had a time machine. But here's the bottom line. God knows, and he knows perfectly well in what ways we have messed up. And I want to tell you that Jesus Christ has died for all of our sins. He has died for every one of our sins. So I can stand before you today in many ways, as a failure who has done a poor job, not just eight ways, but 800 ways. But I can also stand in front of you today and say, you cannot condemn me, for there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For my standing before God is not based upon how good of a father I was, but my standing before God is based upon the fact that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, lived in my place, and that he took away my sins, and he died for all of them, and he forgives me, and he loves me. See, this is not the bottom line. The bottom line is that there is restoration, and that there is joy in the gospel, and that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you're standing in front of us and saying, you made all of these um, mistakes, and you committed all these sins, and no, so there's no big deal. Yeah, it really is a big deal, and a lot of people were hurt by it. But I'm doing this, I'm walking in your direction saying, please, please don't go down there. I'm doing it for your benefit and for the benefit of your children. I'm not doing it for the benefit of my reputation. I'm okay. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses me from all sin. Peter was a man who stood beside a little girl at a fire and said, May I be damned if I ever so much as knew that man. A few days later, Jesus said to him, Peter, do you love me? Oh, Lord, you know all things. Peter, feed my sheep. I've had to go to my kids, and probably for the rest of my life, as things come to mind, I will continue to have to go to my kids and say, hey, remember when? Oh, my, please forgive me. Yes, I have regrets. But Jesus forgives. He doesn't come to convict us so as to destroy us, but he comes to convict us so as to correct us. One of the elders of our church, is, his name's Brian Kill. He's actually Harry's brother-in-law. I was sitting with him a few years ago at breakfast. Man, I was basically going over this list. It was before i had made a sermon of it, but I was just going through saying, I am down, like I'm feeling really low Brian right now because of all the failures that I committed as a father and Brian said to me his children are small my children are raised all of my children know the Lord they're all saved and my son Charlie's sitting back there he's listening to this I mean it's it's embarrassing to say but honestly he could get up and he could he could quadruple this talk about bad things that I've done he's much better husband and a much better father than I am. And but but he could listen to this. But but I regret things that I that I did and harshness that I had with him. And 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 you feel it later on. You 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 feel it. And I was feeling it and I was saying to Brian, I, I'm feeling this 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 sorrow in my heart. And Brian said to me, You know, is twenty years from now you could guarantee me that all five of my children loved and knew the Lord, I don't think anything else would matter. That's Korean for shut up. Just, just shut up. Quit your complaining. In the midst of my failure, God has been gracious to redeem my children. And so, although I stand before you with regrets, more so I stand with you before you with rejoicing, knowing that my God has forgiven me and knowing that God has saved my children. And so, we come now to point number eight. Remember, we started this at 9.15 this morning. Point number eight... And I think this worked out at least nicely in terms of the theme. Here's the most important of the points, the most important thing I will say to you today use the practical gospel with personal applications to reproduce disciples. Use the practical gospel with personal applications to reproduce the gospel. In other words, show your kids how the grace of God works and how you yourself need the grace of God. Teach them how to use the gospel because they're going to need it when you're dead and gone. Most parents show their kids how to do things. You teach them how to cut the grass and how to drive a car and how to brush their teeth, so forth and so on. Have you ever taught your kids how to use the gospel? And it is not something which is self-learned. Teach them the importance of the gospel for salvation, even as Joey was saying earlier about evangelizing his kids. But also, teach them the importance of the gospel, not only how to be saved, but how to be sanctified. What does it look like when the gospel actually moves into a heart? Teach them your personal need for the gospel when you sin, and you will sin, and when you do sin, I encourage you to call a family meeting and say something happened earlier today and everybody needs to be aware of it. Is everybody listening right now? The way I spoke to your mother when I was disappointed at the timeliness with which she put the meal on the table was unthankful, it was ungodly, it was wrong. And it was sinful. And so, Anna, I ask you to forgive me for complaining. And I want to thank you for cooking for us. And children, I want to ask you to forgive me because I put a horrible example in front of you. I sinned against your mother. I sinned in front of you. I sinned against God. God, will you please forgive me? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive and to let your children know that you need a savior. See, here's the bottom line. I'm a sinner. I need grace. I need the gospel. When was the last time you sinned in front of your children? Then that should have been the last time that you called for a family meeting and confessed your sin in front of your children. Do you understand the hypocrisy? We want our children to be truthful. We want our children to be humble. We want our children to be transparent. We want our children to go to Jesus. But if the only thing that they ever hear is, you should be humble, you should be transparent, you should be honest, how dare you lie? How dare you cover up? How dare you bow up? How dare you be prideful? You should be this. If all they're hearing is, what they should be, and they should be hearing what they should be. They're never going to know what it looks like. But when you say to your children, "I am a sinner, and I have acted pridefully, or in unbelief, or in selfishness, or dishonesty," a few years ago, my son Parker asked me on a Saturday if my sermon was finished. I thought, well, you know, I mean, I've been in the ministry for 25 years. Yeah, I mean, it sort of is finished in that sense, in the sense that, you know, I've studied the Bible a lot during the course of my life. It wasn't finished. But I said, yeah, I'm done. Man, I'm trying to go to sleep that night. Can't sleep. Why? Because I lied to him. I had to call him before church the next morning and say, you asked me a question. You asked me if the sermon was finished. I lied to you. No, it wasn't finished. I've asked God to forgive me and I ask you to forgive me. What I'm trying to say to you is this. Your children need to learn how the gospel works through personal applications which you yourself set in front of them because your children are either going to learn how to be hypocrites and if that's the case here's what they're going to do when you're looking they're going to be one way and then when you're not looking they're going to be something else or they're going to be pharisees in which they're going to do everything they can to live up to the external standards of what is expected of them but there's going to be no heart change Or they're going to be mad rebels who are going to say, I can't live up to any of it, so I'm not going to try at all, and I'm just going to live for hell and the devil, because quite frankly, it's a lot more fun. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. You don't want any of that. What you want is not a rebel. What you want is not a Pharisee. What you want is not a hypocrite. What you want is a genuine Christian. You want a disciple, and how do you raise a disciple? It is through the gospel. And how is the gospel communicated? Well, it is communicated every night when you do family devotions. And how is the gospel communicated? It is communicated when they read their Bibles by themselves. And how is the gospel communicated? It is communicated when you take them to Sunday school or to church or to youth camp. How is the gospel communicated? It is communicated when you play Christian music in the home. But I will argue argued that the gospel is most effectively communicated when you live with them and you show them through your life what it looks like not only in your failures Yes, in your failures, you need the gospel to forgive you. But let's remember that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And the gospel should bring about changes. So it's one thing for me to say, I am so sorry that I have been so mean and so cruel and, and, and shown so much anger and emotion. And will you please forgive me? That's all well and good. That should happen. And to say to them, Jesus has forgiven me and I have gone to God. That's all well and good. But there is also the aspect of repentance when they see that you in the future have not only just kept saying, I'm sorry, but you in the future now have repented of your anger or repented of your discontent or repented of your lying or repented of your idolatry. Do you see what I'm saying? It is the power of God to change a life. And when, at the end of the day, your kids sit down with a psychologist and they are all screwed up in the head, which every psychologist thinks that every parent has been wrong forever, and they're just going to tell you that all of your problems stem from the fact of how horrible your parents were, and your kid sits down with the psychologist, and they start to talk about you and the many things that you've done, and they're going to come up with much more than eight examples of how you didn't do the right thing. At least, let there be... From the words of the mouths of your children, these words. My mother was a Christian. My mother loved Jesus. My mother told me the gospel. My father lived the gospel. My father used the gospel in our daily life. Yeah, there's a whole mess of things. And I, I only gave you eight things here, but but there's so many more where I did things wrong. But don't get the gospel wrong. Get that into your home in the way that you live and the way that you communicate. Again, I'm... I'm only saying this for your benefit, for the benefit of your kids. I, I hope it has been of some help to you. Uh, I, I hope you can, I, I hope you'll be asked to do a parenting seminar 25 years from now. And I hope that you will stand up and your purple notebook with how not to parent your children will be empty. And I hope in part it'll be empty because maybe you listened to what I had to say and you didn't walk down those alleys that I walked down. And I hope that you will employ the gospel for the glory of God and for the good of your kids. Thank you for sticking around all day. Thank you for listening so attentively. Thank you for investing in your children. I'm so humbled and honored that you would even stick around to, to hear all of this. I hope perhaps maybe you were Helped by it in some way. Remember the goal at the beginning of the morning? If you would just take one thing, just take one thing, apply it, and then that'd be that'd be enough. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you for allowing us today to spend time in your word and to think about our responsibilities. I pray that we would take them seriously, and I pray that by the power of your spirit we would. Lord, serve these precious gifts that you have given to us well. Pray, Lord, for single people in the room today, Lord, who are desirous to be married. I pray, Lord, that if it be your will, uh, that you would please bring a helper for them. Lord, I pray for couples in the room, perhaps that have not been able to have children yet, but wish to. Lord, I pray that you would hear their prayer and that you would grant them these blessings. Lord, for those of us who do have children, cause us, Lord, please, to do uh, for your glory and for their good our best, by grace, in Jesus' name, amen.